This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. And I'm super excited to be speaking today with Gloria Lynn, the Managing Director in Evercore's Strategic Defense and Shareholder Advisory Team, covering tech and healthcare clients. Before joining Evercore in 2019, Gloria was a director in Citigroup's global M&A team in New York, where she worked for 11 years. Over the years, she's worked on a host of activist and hostile bid campaigns and lots of different kinds of insurgency situations facing off versus the top activists out there, including Elliott Management and Jana Partners. Thank you, Gloria, for taking the time. Thanks so much, Ron. Great to be here. Okay, so I want to start off talking about one of my favorite subjects. A subject I actually wrote an article about this morning at a in an M&A situation that is what I like to call white squire defensive tactics. I know this is a loaded word, white squire, and viewed very differently by both activist investors and companies. In brief, this is a strategy where a company brings in a large pipe investor or another type of investor or multiple investors with the primary goal of helping to fend off an activist by gaining supportive votes ahead of a director contest. Or it could be used also to help get a contested merger approved. And I've also seen it to help defend against hostile bids. And, you know, this sometimes there can be some explicit agreement that the pipe investor will vote shares in favor of the incumbent slate. But a lot of times I'm seeing lately where there's no kind of voting agreement tied to them, but they do end up helping companies fend off an activist or get a deal approved. So, Gloria, I'm curious how you would discuss the possibility of this kind of investment when an activist is agitating or a deal is under threat. I guess it's important to justify what the money's for. I don't know. Just tell me, is this something that you talk about when an activist is accumulating or a, a deal is under threat? Yeah, sure, Ron. I mean, it can often be viewed clearly as, as a potential attractive defense against an activist that may have come in and is agitating either against a deal or trying to run a campaign against a company. But, you know, to be honest, more often than not, we do caution against it. And that's not to say that we haven't had clients in the past that have actually implemented a pipe when there's been activists involved. Mm -hmm. You know, in particular, unless there is a very clear business purpose, Mm. perhaps funding R&D or cash burn or even fund M&A, it's really hard to justify the need. And mm-hmm. not just in the context of activism, but really for all your shareholders. Why is the company raising additional money? What are the proceeds being used for? Both PE as well as activists, right? They take pipe positions. And that's not surprising, particularly given that M&A is at a low and with depressed financing markets, all funds are really looking for ways to make money. For their investors. And that's not necessarily taking, you know, at this point, you know, chances of taking companies private are relatively low. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, it's you can have a well-known investor support the company, right? And take a pipe. And we've seen this many times in tech, for example, from the likes of perhaps Silver Lake. Mm-hmm. And then often helps put a stamp of approval on the value creation and upside potential of the company. But At the same time, right, if you're in an activist situation, you could also potentially have a large shareholder just come out and publicly support the company Mm -hmm. uh, in a campaign. So, you know, long story short, I think, you know, from our perspective, whether it's in the context of activism or otherwise, it's really important to think through the business rationale and ultimately the terms that are agreed upon. 
And I would note that one of these pipe investments is being litigated at the Delaware Court of Chancery. I know a lot of advisors are kind of eagerly looking at that to see whether, you know, what the outcome will be and whether it'll encourage, you know, it's one of these situations at a biotech company where the question is, is it a kind of entrenchment tactic or is it critical financing that the company needs? And it wasn't about defending the company against a dissident investor with a director contest that ultimately lost their director contest. But anyways, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. But Laura, you've talked about how there can be unintended consequences associated with a pipe investor. And I thought this was really, really fascinating. Can you maybe kind of extrapolate on it? Is the idea that, you know, maybe that, that pipe investor fends off an activist now, but they could be, they could switch and become an activist down the road? Yes. Yes. I mean, Evan, look, I, I probably broaden it a little bit. You know, sometimes it's not just a pipe investor who is supportive of the company at one point, but it could be just a large supportive shareholder or even a quote unquote insider, institutional or even PE that sits on the board or has a, has a large stake that may not be quite as supportive of the company strategy. Down the road, you mean like uh, exactly down down the road, exactly down the road. And so, if your investment is underwater or trading at a meaningful discount, we're speaking about pipes and perhaps you know associated convertibles. You can imagine that that investor is thinking about ways to either improve or perhaps exit their position. And sometimes having an activist agitate run a campaign to put the company in play or perhaps pressure the board to act one way or another can directly or indirectly influence that potential more favorable outcome to that investor. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like these investments could be a double-edged sword, saves the company from the activist in this short term, but down the road, it could be a little different. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. So I want to talk about governance. You know, so you mentioned that the, when you were, when, when you were talking about the White Squires, that they often get board seats on companies. And that's part of like the, I think the branding or the the positive message that this is some sort of technology expert at a top tier private equity firm has made a pipe investment and they get a board seat for that person. That person brings some needed technology expertise, let's say, at a company, a tech focused firm or a software firm. And that's very interesting. But I thought maybe you could talk more broadly about directors and whether they're are certain characteristics of a director that could attract an activist. Obviously the activist has to have their, you know, their 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 broader performance, MA strategy at a company. I feel like there's certain kind of characteristics of directors that are kind of red flags and talking about kind of over-tenured overboard directors, directors in their 80s. And then I always feel uncomfortable using the term independent directors, even though that's a term that the NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange clearly defines, because as a reporter, I often look for relationships. So maybe talk a little about governance and, and whether that's a big issue for activists. In particularly under the universal proxy card regime, absolutely. And I mean, activists have always gone after directors that, as you mentioned, right, who perhaps in their 80s or overboarded or perhaps over-tenured. And I think what it really underscores, at least the way that activists talk about it in campaigns, it's really this view that perhaps the board is entrenched. Mm -hmm. Perhaps either these directors have been on these boards for too long where they really don't necessarily meet the needs of the company today. 
or are perhaps less willing to consider other strategic alternatives. Mm-hmm. And again, just given that we are in the universal proxy card regime, you know, that actually hasn't necessarily changed the tactics that activists use, or perhaps we get a lot of questions of, are there going to be more campaigns? Have there been more campaigns? We wouldn't necessarily say that's because of, because of you know, the UPC. But what we would say is that there is now this sentiment and the ability really of shareholders to vote off the quote unquote weakest link on a board. And so for all of those reasons, constantly thinking about board refreshment and having additional candidates in the pipeline, really being thoughtful about the skills matrix for a company, particularly given where the company is today and their evolution as a public company, whether that's industry expertise or cost expertise or M&A expertise, even sometimes what we advise companies, do you even have shareholder expertise? Do you have somebody who has institutional investor experience on the board? These are all things that even if a company isn't under attack by a shareholder, we do believe it's it's good governance and important for the non-gov committee of companies to constantly be thinking through these considerations. Just to kind of drill down at it for a second. So the point, I guess, with the universal proxy card that, you know, before it was more you vote for the, you know, the entire dissident slate or vote for the entire incumbent slate and support the activists' total agenda versus the company's total agenda. Now with, you know, the ability to really pick and choose individual directors that you can really narrow in or put a, a bullseye on one particularly kind of egregious director, so to speak, you know, with proxy advisors able to say, oh, we recommend for this one dissident candidate of their four and to remove this one incumbent candidate. And so that's why you really need to make sure you have the best candidates. Is that is that what you meant by the that's, that's exactly right. It's the ability now for, you know, effectively for shareholders to not just choose one slate or the other, as you said, but really look at the mix of candidates and then choose the best from the combined list. And so now that effectively they're looking at one list, it is a lot easier for activists as well as proxy advisors to point to specific directors that they actually don't recommend putting on the board. Mm-hmm. No, it's definitely a very interesting world we're in with the UPC. So, okay, at the deal, I have to ask you about deals and activism is a topic that we write about every day here, obviously, at the deal. And so beyond governance and white squares, I wanted to get a sense of whether you feel like, I know you know a lot of activists push for M&A, and sometimes I feel like they have an M&A agenda, even if it's not mentioned in their poison pen letter or their campaign. But it's a very cooler M&A environment. But I feel like m activism is still a busy trend, just anecdotally speaking, based on the, the stuff that we've been writing about lately. I'm just, I'm curious, what are your thoughts? What are you seeing at Evercore? Are you, you're seeing a lot of m activism and what kind of m and I feel like there's kind of at least three different buckets. You have sell the company, divest a unit, block an existing deal. I would say, again, just given given where we are in the markets right now, where it's it's not always easy to get M&A across the finish line. On one hand, right, whether that is because of financing markets not really being there, there are a couple of deals that have gotten across. But, you know, for the most part, we would say still pretty weak. 
you know, particularly on the debt side. And then at the same time, right, I think just given the value gap between buyers and sellers, you know, this is one where it's still been hard, (laughs) really hard to bridge that gap, even though, you know, some folks have also found kind of creative ways and transaction structures to do so. So from an activist perspective, we have seen a lot of activists come out against M&A. And, you know, particularly against against existing deals, like they try to block, try to block that deal. Okay, exactly. And whether that's because of price isn't high enough or right, there's uncertainty related to antitrust, again, given this regulatory environment, Mm -hmm. it's been a lot easier from our perspective for activists to convince shareholders that perhaps, you know, you know, this announced M&A transaction was not the right path, whether that's on the buyer, you know, target versus acquire, really wherever the vote is needed, again, to convince the other shareholders that this is not the best use of, of their cash. And it's not the best strategy for the company. And perhaps there are other ways for the company to increase value. You know, we've had a number of situations this year as well, where, you know, a large portion of the vote was actually held by retail investors, particularly in in the biotech space, as well as the tech space. And we've seen instances where activists also are deliberately going after companies that have a high retail stake. And oftentimes, these are companies that also have very low or depressed stock price where they can really accumulate a large position and block deals. Now, that's not to say that you don't have activists who come in and still are trying to put either the company in play to run a strategic review or a public process, which has its own other consequences, or even to try to push the company to think about unlocking value by divesting parts of the business or assets. We still clearly see that as well, particularly in you know the larger conglomerates. Lots of interesting stuff to unpack here. I just wanted to kind of uh, drill down for a second. So you're saying that you've seen situations where there's a company with a large retail base involved in a merger and an activist shows up and is able to kind of thwart that merger or, or tries to block the deal. Is, is that this one of the scenarios you're, you're, you're saying? We've we've been seeing? Yes, yes. When you think about the retail investor base, they're they're much different than we constantly think about in terms of the institutional, active institutional investors. On one hand, right, they tend to actually be apathetic to situations or it's really hard to get them to vote in general. A lot of the IR or even proxy materials that go out there, you know, retail investors aren't reading through tons of pages. And so in many of these situations, sometimes it, it can be really hard to rally the retail base and get them to vote. But on the flip side of that, activists have been very effective at using other means of getting to retail shareholders, in particular using digital channels, you know, whether that's social media, Reddit threads, Yahoo Finance, Facebook or other tweets or otherwise, you know, to convince retail shareholders one way or another to support or go against a deal. Mm -hmm. And from our perspective, because 
really the tactics have changed in terms of how you get to the retail investor base. Companies also then really need to be thinking about their strategies a lot differently. Even before you start thinking about an M&A deal, oftentimes as bankers, right, we focus on value. We focus on synergies. We focus on accretion dilution, uh, scale. But some of the topics that, again, in this market that we believe are very important to start thinking about earlier on include the makeup of the shareholder base. And in particular, if you have retail investors, you need to think about different tactics on how you get to the retail investors. Yeah, no, that's very interesting because I suspect, I mean, I know for a fact that in this one situation I wrote about with a biotech company that had an activist investor, well-known activist investor, it had a huge retail population. The two proxy advisors, ISS and Glass, was recommended in favor of the incumbent board, but it didn't matter. The activists won overwhelmingly because the retail investors were not interested in what the proxy advisors had to say. They were just really upset about the situation that had materialized there, and they supported the dissident. And then, anyways, it was a complete shakeup of the board, ultimately what happened. So definitely something that is interesting to have to, to think about retail investors. It seems like it's a very different way of looking at things. It is. It is. And I, I would say particularly in the, you know, in, in the biotech space, which is what I think the situation that you were mentioning, we advised on a, another biotech reverse merger, Charisma and, and Sesson. And in that scenario, it was very similar where there was this public sentiment greeted on a lot of the chats where investors were skeptical of the process that the company went through whether or not it had been broad enough, they were skeptical of the price. And what it comes down to, not even just in that situation, but for a lot of biotechs that are clearly undervalued or have enterprise values below their market cap because they're sitting on a lot of cash, this is one where I think activists are very focused on trying to create this narrative that puts distrust against the board and the leadership. And once you've lost that type of credibility, it's a lot easier for an activist to almost come in and advocate anything else besides what the board or, or management team has decided on. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. So one of the other areas you mentioned, and I also have seen this area, sometimes it's publicly clearly laid out in their letters. Other times you know, we learn about it through having conversations with the activists is have them divest the unit. And this is, you know, with, these are kind of mini conglomerate situations with two or more distinct divisions. And do you suggest that uh, companies conduct a periodic portfolio review? And I'm wondering if they do that, do you feel like they have a better advantage when an activist comes in and saying you should sell this division that you know you already looked at that possible divestiture? Alternatively, if you haven't done a you know a review of your various different conglomerates and what's core, I know that's also a loaded word. What's core versus non-core? Activists think things are non-core that the company obviously would think are core, but. Is that something you suggest to companies, particularly you know conglomerates with multiple different divisions? Absolutely, I, I think the way that you asked that question, Ron, I, I think that perhaps you know maybe you were a banker and a financial advisor in a past life, but um, <laughs> that's absolutely right. This is an area where it's it's just good practice for companies. So regardless of whether there is an activist in the stock or they're nervous about an activist, it's important for companies to to think about what is the value, at least from an inside-out perspective, when they look at their businesses, you know, what's the inside-out value versus what value 
are they getting from an outside in? How do the markets, how do research analysts, how do shareholders view their respective businesses? And if there is a disconnect, and oftentimes in these markets, there clearly is, you know, the question becomes, should the company be doing something differently? Even just consider it. And some of the best clients we work with, they do this, as you said, periodically, but it's very regular for them, for the management team, for the board to consider these perspectives. And at the end of the day, the companies that do this the most, you know, oftentimes those are the ones who are the most prepared should an activist come in, because what better rebuttal than if an activist has come in, review your portfolio, than for you know a board or management team to say, we do that all the time. And look at all the XYZ transactions where we've already divested, right? Mm-hmm. So yes, I think this is one where we would put in the bucket of, you know, again, this is just good housekeeping, good practice. No, absolutely. Okay. We don't have a lot of time left. There's one other deal-related thing I wanted to chat about, which is kind of, I guess, another category of deals, which I what I fall in this category of bad deals. And these are situations where a company makes a big acquisition. I guess we would call a transformative acquisition, where it's you know very focused on this one area and it buys this other company for a lot of money. There's not really a shareholder vote to block the deal, but an activist will come in and you know try to elect directors and you know shake things up in, in this kind of situation. Of course, I, you know a couple examples was involved Carl Icahn targeting Illumina after it faced a massive regulatory headwinds. With its Grail acquisition, and then the year before, Icon targeted Southwest Gas and utility when it bought a pipeline. And in both cases, the CEOs removed following Icon's agitation over the deals. And you know, I have a few other examples that don't involve Carl Icon, but other activists where the activist has been successful when the company does this transformative deal. So, my question to you, Gloria, is: What can you do as a company, or what do you recommend the companies? to do so that investors aren't surprised by a really big deal that maybe takes it out of its core business. And I know you can't tell investors, institutional investors, retail investors before you make the big deal that, oh, we're going to buy this company in like, you know, like two months. You can't do that. But right. can, can you kind of give them some sort of indication or, and is that something you talk to them about say, oh, you know, if you buy this company and the investors won't understand the share price will go down, the activists will show up. Is that, is that something that you actually, you know, you would tell a company? Oh, yes. Yes. We, I mean, we're in the business of being good, trusted advisors. So we think there's a deal that's that a company or one of our clients might be considering, which we actually think is not a good idea for that company or in their best interest. We, we absolutely will, will, will tell that client. And oftentimes that we have our defense hats on too. So it may not just be us, but it is the cautioning the client that you might also have activists that'll come in and, and say the same thing. You know, fully agree. You can't clearly can't say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of acquiring XYZ company publicly, obviously. And this is one where companies, you got to think about, okay, have you dropped sufficient breadcrumbs out there where investors aren't going to be shocked or surprised or view it as a negative? Have you talked about your capital allocation policy? And as part of that, how do you think of the trade-offs between organic and inorganic growth? Have you thought about or put out publicly, how do you, what are the KPIs that you use to 
determine whether an M&A deal is a good one or not, right? Whether that's ROI or, or otherwise. Again, from an M&A perspective, strategically, are there certain areas that you're thinking about? Or even if it's not even necessarily directly related to M&A, as a company, have you put out there, where is the company headed? What are you going to focus on, whether that's geographically or potentially vertically in, in your industry? Mm-hmm. And so one is drop in the breadcrumbs even before you announce a transaction. Mm-hmm. I would say the other one is very much thinking about how do you appropriately and most effectively market your your deal. So at announce this is once it's announced, you talk to your investors. <laughs> yes, exactly. Talk to your investors, get the feedback. But even then, in terms of as you think about your talking points to investors, right? It should be so crisp. You should be able to very simply, and we talk about this all the time, literally writing in crayon, very simply, right? And, you know, say five bullet points, being able to explain to somebody why this makes sense for the value creation of the company. And you'd be surprised just the number of presentations that are out there collateral that come out after a deal where oftentimes it's almost the last thing that the company has thought about versus actually starting there mm-hmm. and convincing themselves and the board that I'm able to explain it to myself very simply, right. as well as to my shareholders. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was just thinking that sometimes they could explain it to themselves very simply, but maybe not so easily. The shareholders, and they're very surprised when the share price drops fairly substantially after you know a blockbuster acquisition that they thought was a very positive for the company. But I've seen so many situations where they make these big acquisitions and the share price drops and then the activist accumulates and comes in. So sensing an opportunity. So, but okay, we are out of time. This has been so enjoyable. This has been the Activist Investment Today podcast with Ron Oral, and I've been talking to Gloria Lynn, a managing director in Evercore's corporate strategic advisory business. Thank you, Gloria, for taking the time. Thank you so much, Ron.